Well, good evening. Let me add my welcome uh, to Heidi's. If you're new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here. And as you've heard, we've been working through uh, Luke's Gospel. We're up to this section. Actually, next week will be the final week um, when Mark will look through the last section um, of Luke 9 uh, before we launch into Old Testament in Term 3. That's where we're heading. But let me pray for us as we come to this passage. I think it's a fairly heavy passage because it's quite a strong rebuke to the disciples. And as those that are seeking to follow Jesus, there's some hard words for us to take on board and to respond to as well. So let's pray and ask that God would help us as we come to his word. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can gather here this evening. We thank you for the freedom to do so. We thank you that you are a God who reveals yourself uh, through your word and ultimately through the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we ask tonight that we may see him more clearly in all his glory, all his greatness, and hear too his words for those who would follow him and seek to live um, in his way as a servant. And so we pray for your help uh, to reflect on these things. Help us to put them into practice, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I've got some friends that I've known for a number of years who were missionaries in Bolivia uh, for about a decade. And uh, they lived in this uh, wonderful valley, this huge mountain range behind them. This, the largest mountain there is called Mount Tanari. And they decided one day that they would climb this mountain. Now, for you who are into um, walking or hiking or mountain climbing, this is a 5,000-metre high mountain. It's, it's somewhat of a decent effort to get up the top, and I think their two kids are about 10 and 12 at the time. And so they were pretty pumped when they reached the top and they'd achieved that as a family. It's wonderful views looking back down on the city. It was such a high, a natural high, as they went and spent that time there. And as they came back down in the afternoon into the valley, back to their house, their mountain high suddenly evaporated as they got back to their place and saw that it had been burgled. Uh, thieves had been in and taken their computer, which had all their important information on, all their family photos. They'd also taken on the backup drive. The father had just gone out that morning to get a whole lot of money from the bank, ready to pay all the bills for the month, including their rent, and all that money was gone as well. And it just seemed so, oh, after this huge high, to come back to this mess. There they are in their house. All their things are strewn around the floor in their building. It was such a downer after what had been a wonderful day. We know as we come to this passage in Luke 9, there's something of that feeling as well. As we heard before, you know, the two weeks ago as we looked at the previous passage, Jesus and the inner circle of Peter, James and John had been up on the mountain and the transfiguration had happened. Jesus was as bright, as brilliant as lightning. And they had seen him in all his glory, if only for a brief time. And after this glorious moment up on the mountain, the next day they come down back onto the plain, as it were, back into the valley. And Jesus... And his disciples, the inner circle of three, are confronted with the mess. It's a picture of defeat and frustration. And what follows on that is just as bad. In the aftermath of the difficulties they faced as they saw this situation where a young boy would, had not been healed, then there were these arguments between the disciples about who was going to be the greatest, who was the most important. And so as we come to this passage, I think the big question that flows out from it is this. 
who is truly great? Who is truly great? Or to put it differently, who is worthy of our honour? Who is worthy of honour? And I think our passage answers this question in two ways. We're going to see in two different ways that help us not only think about who Jesus is, but also think about ourselves if we're seeking to follow him as his disciple. And so the first answer to our question, who is truly great, is Jesus, the God-man. He is truly great. Have a look again at verses 37 to 40 with me as this scene is set for another amazing display of Christ's power. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. That is Jesus. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. And so here is Jesus, Peter, James and John return from the mountain. There's a crowd gathered and emotions are very high. Uh, this father is very upset, perhaps rightly so. And this has been something that his young son has experienced all his life. As we read the parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, um, this is because these seizures and convulsions have been happening because he's been possessed by a demon and it's something that he's had to deal with for years. In fact, in Matthew and Mark's accounts, it talks about how the demon would actually throw the young boy into the fire, into water, and create further injury to him. And so it's no understatement, actually, from the father to say that he is being destroyed by this. He's a desperate man. Now, as we back back a couple of steps and think about the context of this, remember at the start of chapter 9, we saw a few weeks ago, in verses 1 and 2, Jesus had sent the 12 disciples out to preach the good news, to proclaim the kingdom of God to all the villages around them in this northern part of Galilee. And he'd also empowered them so that they might heal people of diseases and drive out demons. And so his disciples have been empowered for a situation just like this. But it seems in this example, the nine disciples who were behind, seemingly powerless at this point, the father had begged them to help, but they could not, and now he begs Jesus. And Christ, who had been so wonderfully transfigured on the mountain, he comes back and he's able to cope with this problem in the valley. He asserts his authority over the demonic again, and he gives some significant teaching about faith on the back of this, of why this messy situation had unfolded. But notice Christ's reaction to the father's plea. I think if you were the father here, or anyone in the crowd for that matter, listening to what Jesus was going to do next, you wouldn't have expected these words. Notice verse 41. Jesus says, You unbelieving and perverse generation! How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Notice that Jesus rebukes the demon, but not before he rebukes the disciples the whole crowd, indeed, the whole generation of people in that first century. I guess at least as he says that word generation, he's thinking about all of those that lived in this northern area of the Galilee. And Jesus rebukes them, notice, 
in two ways. He uses two terms. They are both unbelieving and perverse. What's he saying here? Well, firstly, on the one hand, unbelieving is showing their lack of faith or trust when Jesus had shown over and over and over again that he was worthy of their faith, of their trust in him. He had taught as no one had taught before. They had seen him cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead. And yet there is this sense of unbelief in the people, indeed, even perhaps in his own disciples. You know, throughout Scripture, people are urged to trust God, and when they do, nothing is impossible for them. And perhaps the fact that no one was able to cure this boy, including his own disciples who'd been empowered for that very task, is evidence to Jesus of the lack of faith that, that pervades that generation. Because the Father delights to work with even the smallest expression of faith. Now, we don't get it here in Luke's Gospel, but in the other parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, it tells us immediately following this that the disciples go up to Jesus and question him. How, how did this happen? Why is it we can't heal him? And Jesus goes on to talk about faith as small as a mustard seed. And that if they had even that, they could call a mountain and tell it to throw itself into the sea, and it would. The problem is not that they have only a small amount of faith, but they seem to lack faith altogether. Jesus obviously expected that they would have healed the boy. Also, he calls them perverse. You know, perverse is a word that means distorted or twisted, usually in our thinking or our understanding of something. And in this case, given the context of Jesus' teaching, it's distorted spiritual understanding. It's obviously linked with their unbelief, their failure to trust Jesus and what he'd empowered them to do. And perhaps it's particularly perverse among his own disciples who have seen him up close for two years already at this point. But they still lack faith to believe that God had the power to work through them again. They'd seen it just a few weeks earlier. Jesus had an expectation of them, which they'd failed to meet on this day. And so that's why the rhetorical question follows in verse 41. Perhaps we see it as fairly harsh, but Jesus says, How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? That's a stinging rebuke, isn't it? I guess that very comment from Jesus actually assumes that he's visiting the world for a short period, that he's come to establish his kingdom, indeed to establish the church on the back of his death and resurrection and ascension to heaven, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And yet his work, it seems, at some level is being frustrated with the lack of faith present even among his own disciples. He's come on a set mission for a limited time, a great priority in this three years of public ministry will be to train up this group of 12 men, and indeed a wider group, but especially the 12. And yet they seem so slow of heart and faith in him. And I think we get to this point at the end of chapter 9 and we begin to think, well, it's probably good that there's another 12 months that he's got with these guys because there's lots of struggles here. It's not just what we're seeing in this moment, but as the passage unfolds, it gets even worse. And yet there's more time that he will spend with them as he teaches them before he heads for the cross. In fact, when you get to the end of chapter 9, as we'll see next week, it's at that point that Jesus announces he's heading for Jerusalem and the cross where he will lay down his life for all people. But in verse 42, notice, Jesus casts out the demon with the word and the boy was instantly healed. 
Here is the true power of Christ displayed for all to see. Now, it may not have been the glorious transfiguration on the mountain, but remember, that was a private affair almost. There's just three disciples that see that, and Moses and Elijah. But now he's come back down into the valley, and it's not just the other 12, but it's a huge crowd of people, and they are seeing publicly him display his glory in the way he miraculously deals with this young boy. And do you notice the people actually put two and two together here? We're told that they marvel at the greatness of God when they had seen Christ's miracle. They're saying that Christ is God, and they've got it right. They see the glory in what he is able to do. They are marveling at his power amongst them. And so the crowd testifies to his greatness. It's a testimony to Christ's divinity. Now at such a moment, Jesus could have rightly, deservedly basked in that glory. He was deserving of that glory, of the praise of the people. But rather than holding that moment, as it were, for himself, he reminds his disciples with a stunning statement that just seems in such sharp contrast to what's just happened. Have a look what follows, verse 43. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. So they did not grasp it and they were afraid to ask about it. I mean, humanly speaking at this point, it would be hard, wouldn't it, for the disciples to process this? I mean, they've just seen him heal a boy that they failed to do. They have seen a great crowd of people acclaiming his greatness, the divinity of Jesus. And then in the next breath, he says he's going to be handed over. The inference is to die. He's going to be killed. This one who is so great that is being acclaimed and marveled at by the crowd, he's going to be handed over to similar people that are going to kill him. How do these things go together? The glorious Christ and the humiliation of being handed over to be killed? Humanly speaking, you can see their struggle. But we know as we look back from 2,000 years beyond the cross that this was the Father's plan from the beginning, that he had sent his Son into the world, that he may lay down his life to bear the punishment that we deserve for our rejection, our rebellion of God. But it's hard. And this is the one with all authority. He's the one that can heal all diseases, who can cast out demons, who can raise the dead. Surely this glorious one can't allow himself to be delivered over to men. But this is part of the glory of Christ, isn't it? In the fuller picture of who he is, the one with all status and power will one day lay down his life. But at this point, these great truths are hidden from Christ's disciples. God has not opened their minds to that clearly yet. We see, don't we, even on the road to Emmaus at the end in Luke 24, the disciples are still trying to process this stuff as they say, well, we thought he was the one, but you know, he's been killed. It's not fully until they receive the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 that the lights go on, that all the dots join up and that they see Christ in all his glory, that actually his weakness and death at the cross 
makes him even more glorious. The one with all power, the eternal son, would lay down his life for people who often rejected him. Well, what's the application for us? We don't struggle with those things that the disciples did at that point. We sit so much later, and if you've placed your trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, then you have received the Holy Spirit. You understand these truths already. But there's still a huge challenge for us in this passage, in this first section. Because the application for us is with regard to faith and Christ's stinging rebuke of his generation. I mean, could he say the same thing of our generation if he walked among us today? I mean, it's certainly not the case that we're called to test the reality of our faith by trying to conduct healings. No, that's not the inference. But there's a striking illustration here of the fact that for Jesus, faith is not mere intellectual assent. It's a practiced reliance on God's power. It's entrusting every moment to, of our lives to him, prayerfully, humbly, realizing that our next breath comes from him, that all that we have depends on God. And so we need to be very careful too, don't we, that our faith is not just talk, it's not just lip service, but that we actually live it out in our decisions day by day in the way we live out our faith to walk humbly and prayerfully, to trust God to provide for us, to work in and through our lives. Why do we find that so difficult? Let me assume it is difficult for you. I find it difficult. I think it's because we live in an age where we're just so self-sufficient. We seem to have everything on tap. Money appears in my bank account. You know, I have a place to sleep. I have warm clothes and food to eat. I don't feel myself depending on God and living from hand to mouth, worrying about the next moment. I just assume I've got it under control, that I'm just comfortable, that things work out because I've got this. Of course, it's not really true. Let me tell you a story about someone who truly lived it. Uh, George Muller was a man of great faith. He was an evangelist and a social reformer in Britain in the 19th century. This was a guy who housed, clothed and accommodated 10,000 orphans in his lifetime through an orphanage he established in Bristol. He's also a man that started 117 Christian schools that educated 120,000 children in a day when many people didn't get to go to school. In fact, he was attacked for raising people beyond their station and allowing people to be educated that wouldn't have otherwise had a chance. But he struggled as he did these things. It wasn't a simple thing. He didn't have the resources that people might pull on today. And he said this, Faith does not operate in the realm of the possible. There is no glory for God in that which is humanly possible. Faith begins where man's power ends. I think he's right. And he lived it. He faced huge struggles as he operated these ministries, particularly the orphanage. They just lived from day to day. He never asked for a dollar, not a shilling, once in the whole time he operated this. He just prayed that God would provide their needs the next day. So often they ran out of food. Someone would knock on the door. You might need this for your children. 
In fact, they reached one point and he wrote in his diary, the funds are exhausted. We've been reduced so low that we're at the point of selling the few things that we actually have. And then a woman arrived and knocked on the door who'd been travelling for four days and handed over enough money to run the orphanage for the rest of the year at that point. How did Muller reflect on that moment? Well, he said this, God delights to increase the faith of his children. We ought, instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise of patience, to be willing to take them from God's hands as means, I say, and I say it deliberately, trials, obstacles, difficulties, even defeats are the very food of faith. Well, let me ask you, do you have such a relationship with the Lord that you live day by day completely dependent on him providing your next step? I think we find it hard to put ourselves in George Muller's shoes. We don't quite live from hand to mouth in that way. But we should have a relationship like that, surely, with the Lord where we acknowledge our dependence all the time. <laughs> that we pray about everything because we don't have it in our strength to do what we want to do. That we're completely dependent on him to help us and to answer us. And if our faith is not a practice faith, if we don't live that way, then when the crises hit, and they will, well then we'll be sorely tested, won't we? How do you know that your faith is genuine? Well, you know it when it's tested, right? And so the question is, has it been tested? And if it hasn't, when you reach that moment, well, will you know? See, we face things because we have learnt over time to practically depend on God for all things. We want to live like George Muller just a century later. And brings me to a second answer to our question, the question of who is truly great. Yes, Jesus is the one answer to that. He is the one who is truly great. But he also says that disciples who are the least can be great. Now, don't get me wrong. Believers are not great in the sense that Jesus is. He's the eternal son. But if we follow him, the example of our servant king, then we can reflect something of his character. Disciples who are the least. Have a look at verses 46 to 48. Here is true greatness. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. It's hard to imagine this, isn't it? You know, Peter's saying to John, look, I'm a better fisherman than you. I'm going to definitely be at the top of the list. Matthew's a tax collector. Look, I've got an economics degree. You guys are fishermen. You think I don't come first? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and made him stand beside him. He said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. I mean, the sharp contrasts just keep on coming in this passage, don't they? The recently transfigured Christ who has come down off the mountain, who has displayed in his glory and yet another amazing miracle, who is acclaimed by the crowd, then announces to his disciples that he's actually going to be going to his death. And meanwhile, his disciples are arguing about who's greatest in his kingdom. 
I mean, it's unbelievable, isn't it? You, you couldn't make this stuff up. How could they possibly be talking about that when the one who is truly great, who they've acknowledged is Lord, has just announced that he's going to lay down his life for them and they're wanting to know who's at the top of the pecking order. It's cringeworthy reading and it's surely an understatement to say that Jesus is very patient at this point in teaching them and correcting them. I mean, notice how he immediately takes up this opportunity to rebuke them. Yes, he rebukes them, but he does so in a surprising manner, in a very humbling way for them, to bring a child to stand amongst them. I mean, it's hard for us, I think, to get our heads around this. We live in an era which is very child-centric. We, we give great attention and focus to our children, the raising of them, place great importance on them, and wonderfully so, I might add. But in the first century, that was not the case. Children were the absolute bottom of the rung. They were insignificant. You didn't pay close attention to children. They were unimportant. You wouldn't speak to them unless you needed to. <laughs> it was that kind of attitude. We've seen it several times in the Gospels. Remember, the disciples themselves had a moment where parents were trying to bring their children to Jesus to bless them. And the disciples are shooing them away. Don't bother the teacher. Don't bring your kid here. Get rid of them. And Jesus rebukes them sharply. Hang on. The kingdom of God is for such as these. And so here is this child standing amongst the disciples after they've been arguing about who's the most important. And Jesus points at this child and says, well, let me show you. Well, it's a difficult moment, no doubt, for them. The child standing behind them, the disciples are told to welcome the insignificant and the humble. And if they do so, like welcoming a child, it's the same as welcoming Jesus. Indeed, the one who sent him, the Father in heaven. The least are the greatest in Christ's kingdom, meaning the weak and the lowly and those who serve and value them. They're the great ones, not the high and mighty that have position and status and power. Now, I think there's a lot that we can learn from this as we apply this to ourselves today, especially in a society like Australia that tends to pat itself on the shoulder, being so egalitarian. We don't have all this class system. Everybody's equal. Well, maybe, but it's nonsense really, isn't it? People measure themselves against each other all the time. I've got more wealth than you. I've got a better job than you. I've got more degrees than you. This is where I am. This is where you are. Our society runs on that kind of paradigm today. The secret of greatness in this passage is not to be great. It's to be lowly. It's not the ability to lord it over others and be the most important person in the room. It's the willingness to become a servant. And so whoever would become first in God's kingdom must be the least, like a child, like a servant. And of course, Jesus himself is the great example of servant leadership, the one who is worthy of all glory, the only one who is truly great, who comes and says, I came not to, serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve, to lay down my life, to give it as a ransom for many. But it's hard, isn't it? It's hard even for Christians today to take this on board because the world says, Flaunt your position. Tell everyone about your status. Be proud. 
Tell everyone about your great achievements, how you've climbed the ladder, how important you are. I mean, humility is a handicap in our society today. It's not honoured, it's not a virtue. It's looked down upon. Lowly service, well, that's shameful. You know, somebody once asked how he could know if he'd actually developed a servant-like attitude. And the answer came, it shows in how you respond when you're treated like one. The famous American evangelist D.L. Moody observed that we can easily be too big for God to use, but we can never be too small. You see, there's no limit, is there, to the good that a person can do if they don't care about their standing or status and whether they're going to get any credit from it. They can just be freed to go out and just serve because they know that their Father in Heaven notices and that's all that matters. You know, we just be glad that we can serve. Sometimes we're looking for position or credit or status like the disciples were. Where am I? Am I going to get the seat next to Jesus in heaven? Such a question shows we don't even understand Christ's values. It's all upside down at that point, isn't it? Sometimes we're just concerned about not wanting to really serve. We'd like a good position if that means that lots of others have to do the work and we don't have to. I don't want to go out of my way. I don't like service because it involves cost. You know, a church leader was once approached by a man who wanted to join their church and he said, look, I'm a really busy guy. I'm really important. I've got lots of stuff on in my life. I'm not really going to be able to serve at church. So I want to say these things up front as I come. Look, I'm not going to be able to go on rosters. I can't, you know, serve or hand out stuff. I'm not going to be able to go and visit people. I'm not available in the evenings either. I've got meetings every night. I won't be able to go to a Bible study. Look, I'm just not going to be able to assist in those ways. And the leader thought about it for a moment. He said, Sir, I think you've come to the wrong church, but I know the one for you. It's just um, three streets down on the right. Thank you, sir. And off he went to find it. And there was an abandoned, boarded-up church building. You see, if we're part of Christ's church, then we are to serve. We're part of his body, and Jesus, the head of the body, says, whoever wants to be great among you must be the least, the one who's overlooked, the one who's lacking in respect, the one who's like a child. And these words come from someone who truly lived it when he's the only one that did not need to, who came not to be served but to serve. Positions of status, desiring earthly rewards, Even lack of time or inconvenience. I mean, these cannot come into the equation for those that follow Christ. They just can't. I guess I want to ask you the question this evening. If you aren't serving in some way, particularly in some inconspicuous way that perhaps no one even knows about, then my question would be why? Now, I'm not urging you to be on a roster. I mean, lots of you are, a huge percentage. And I'm thankful for that. And you use the gifts that God has given you to serve the body of Christ here in many ways. Set aside the roster for a moment. Think about how you come to church or how you interact with people during the week at your home group or whatever it might be, and just your attitude in coming to that in terms of your conversations. Whether you come to serve others 
or to look good amongst them? Do you come thinking of that person that you know who has been unwell or has had a loss in their family or is just facing a really difficult time, has lost their job at work or has really struggled and just failed that exam at uni? And do you come to encourage them? You're praying about them. You're there to serve them. Or do you find that your mindset is not other-centered a lot of the time? Are you serving in even those small ways that are often the most powerful, often the unseen ways that just speak volumes into somebody's life at the moment they need to hear it? But then the question also comes, even if we're doing some of those things, the question is our motivation, isn't it? What is our motivation as we serve? Are you serving for earthly reward, for the praise of others? Let me say, I feel that uh, question keenly myself. It's a great danger the more you're up front or the more you're leading in something that you're doing it for the wrong motives. You're there to impress others or just because that's your role, but you're not doing it in order to bring glory to God. It's a great danger, isn't it? We have to make sure that we're not looking for the praise of people. We really do play to an audience of one and it's only God's opinion that counts and he actually knows and sees our heart. We follow a master who took the form of a servant who lived all his earthly days in humble obscurity in this backwater of the Roman Empire that was just overlooked by everybody. He came as the servant king. <laughs> to follow a master who lived this way it means it changes everything. We don't think as the world does. Surely the goal that we hear over and over in Scripture is that we might one day see Jesus face to face and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. But I can't find any passages in the Bible that say, well done, VIP. And sometimes we respond in that way. It's a very humbling passage. And the humility that Jesus is asking his disciples to express here extends to how they view other people and their involvement in ministry. Did you notice how the passage ends? Have a look at verses 49 and 50 again. This is the Apostle John, the one who wrote all those great passages about love in 1 John as he was an old man on the island of Patmos writing about God's love. But notice he's got some lessons to learn as young John. Master said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. I mean, Luke moves here, doesn't he, to an example of openness and tolerance for the outsider who does work in Christ's name. Although it's hard to reconstruct the background here because it's such a brief episode, I'd argue that what Luke is saying here is that those who believe in Jesus and carry on his name, ministry in his name, should be encouraged. And Christians and churches should not be prohibiting and preventing others from doing ministry because they're not part of our group. They don't belong to us. They're not in our denomination, so we're suspicious of them. Now, that doesn't mean that we lack zeal for the truth. It doesn't mean that we say every um, cult that claims the name of Jesus momentarily is wonderful. I'm not suggesting that for a moment. On the other side of things, though, we're not to sit in judgment on others all the time 
Or worse still, to be jealous of their success and say, oh, well, you know, that church, they've got a lot of people. They're obviously not preaching the gospel. That's why people are flocking to hear, you know, just things that they want to hear, prosperity gospel, something like this. No. Christians need to celebrate the work that Christ is doing through all his people in every group around the world. Wherever evangelical churches are teaching the gospel, praise God. We want to partner with them wherever we can. We want to be on board with the work that God is doing in Wollongong throughout our world. We want to celebrate. We want to work with them. And that's partly why I go to prayer meetings every second month and hear what the other Baptist churches are doing in the Illawarra. It's even more importantly why I go to the Wollongong Ministers Fellowship and hear what other denominations are doing in the area. And let me say that is really good for my heart because it's so humbling at times. Because God's doing amazing things that I'm unaware of most of the time in places all around the Illawarra. God is at work. And that's why we gather with other churches in central Wollongong, as we've done the last few years under the banner of Gospel for the Gong or G4G. Work with other churches in central Wollongong, work with AFES as they serve at the university, and we run evangelistic events so that people might hear the good news about Jesus. We run other events that might equip people. We've run Jesus Is Evangelistic Months, where we've all met on North Beach or at Dalton Park and taken photos and stood shoulder to shoulder with people from other churches that we're standing with as we hold out the gospel of life. And we've sought to raise up the next generation of people that will not only reach out to unbelievers in the Illawarra, but go to the ends of the earth. And so we've got Challenge Day coming up again at the university on the 4th of August. Maybe you've been to that in a previous year. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you've never heard of that. But that's a day where we encourage people to think about full-time gospel ministry. What would it look like for me to give up my job and then to pursue perhaps study at Bible college or whatever it might look like so that I might serve Christ more fully in my life? Now, that may not be an opportunity that everyone can take up, but it's another way that God is raising up people from amongst us. I'd love you to come along to that day. It'd be a great morning. And that's also why we've morphed um, G4G under a wider umbrella now of the Gospel Coalition. You heard about this recently. We've only kicked this off in the Illawarra in May. But we had a great breakfast where 55 pastors came together from eight different denominations and said, hey, we want to work together in new ways. We're going to work under this banner together to see more people in the Illawarra reach for Christ. Well, look, we're only just beginning and we haven't got any runs on the board yet, but it's exciting that that is even taking place. Pray about that, that God will continue to use it. Why are we committed to such things? Because Gospel ministry is not a franchise or an exclusive license that we get to hand out to this one or that one. We partner with all those that own Christ as Lord so that we might see his name proclaimed, that he might be exalted as the truly great one that he is. Well, we need more laborers, don't we, in the Illawarra? We need more laborers throughout this world if many more people are going to hear the good news and respond. Look, we started tonight with the question, who is truly great? Who is truly great? And we've seen that the one and only answer to that question is Jesus, the God-man. 
And yet that very one who is worthy of all our praise says those that follow him can reflect something of his character, can approach greatness themselves if they would see themselves with the servant attitude that he had, that they might be the least and be willing to give all they can to serve him. And so we can join with others in ministering in Christ's name, pointing people to the one who is deserving of our praise. And it's such a strange message. It's so countercultural to our world that we would want to be the least, that we would give up our lives in service of him. But that's why Jesus is our unexpected king. That's why he's our glorious saviour. That's why he's worthy of our praise. That's why he is the only truly great one. And we want to mimic him with our lives in some small way as we are content to be servants who hold out that message. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ, the one who is great. Help us to never fail to marvel at him as the crowds did on that first day as they came down the mountain, as he healed again and they saw his glory. But help us also to take on board his teaching that we may be those who see ourselves as servants, as children, as those ready to be overlooked, ready to serve our master in whatever way or shape or form that it might take. Help us to be humble and ready to be used. Help us not to be too big to be of any use for you, Lord. Grant us this growing understanding day by day and grant us a trust, a faith that would depend on you moment by moment, that would see our absolute need of your help in our lives. Strengthen us by your spirit this week, we ask, to that end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.